Find your seats. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to read the whole chapter. But if you don't have a Bible or you don't have a Bible app, there are Bibles provided for you in, in the chair in front of you. And so underneath that chair, you can find that. And if you're using a pew Bible or a church Bible, you could turn to page 238 of your church Bible to kind of follow along with us. And I invite you to just keep your Bibles open or your app open because I'll keep going back and forth uh, to the passage that we're, or the story that we're going to be looking at. So before I read, uh, just to kind of catch us up to speed at where we're at, the people of God wanted a king, but it was an outright rejection against the true king, which is God. And in so doing, God still in his grace provided them a king, and his name was Saul. But we see Saul's slow decline towards disaster through his moral failures, but also most specifically, he was not a man after God's own heart. He was all about his own kingdom, his own power, all about himself. And so God had to cut him off. He cuts off his dynasty, his line. But he also, last week when Pastor John preached, he cuts him off and rejects Saul himself as king. So the people of God are kingless. And though Saul will continue to be king, what we're going to read here in this chapter is God's pursuit of another. And we've alluded to this in the last few chapters, is that there is one who is a man after God's own heart. And that's what we're going to see here, this turning point. And we're going to read here, starting in chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. So follow along with me. Uh, it's a little long, but I think the story itself is, is um, powerful enough and compelling for us to see and read and also learn and grow together. So verse 1 in chapter, or sorry, verse 35. See, I forgot to read 35 last week. We're going to start in verse 35 of chapter 15 um, and then pursue, go into chapter 16. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and, and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If, Saul's, if Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me with whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And Samuel said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but looks on the out man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. 
Then Samuel said to Jesse, are, your, are all of your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now com command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word, whether it's through stories, through poems, um, through letters. Lord, your word remains forever. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning, whether we are followers of Jesus other than Christian, maybe we're doubting in places where, Lord, we just don't know. Lord, I pray that you would meet us where we're at so that we might be encouraged, we might be transformed by the gospel. Do that now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we go into and delve into chapter 16, I wanted to ask you a question. Has there ever been a circumstance or a decision, a choice in your life where you look back and you go, if that didn't happen, my life would be so different today? Well, I had one of those moments when uh, I invited my parents over to our house. It was this holiday in Korea called Chuseok. And it's this uh, Korean Thanksgiving day and you have this beautiful spread of all this Korean food. And I thought this would be such an opportune time for my kids especially to learn about Korean culture, Korean history, and Korean tradition. So I asked my mom and my dad to share a little bit about Korea. Well, instead of an education lesson on Korean culture and history, what they learned about was my mom's love life as a single woman in her 20s living in Denver as a nurse. <laughs> and I learned a lot too, but that's not what it was intended for. Well, my mom goes on to tell us about how when she was in Denver as a 20-something-year-old learning American culture, one of her friends who was a nurse introduced her to this man, a, a wealthy businessman to go on a date 
Well, long story short, my mom turned him down and said yes to a pastor who eventually was my dad. And as my mom was telling the story, my two daughters, right, I mean girls, they were so smitten by the story. You know, their hands were on their chin, and they were just listening with so much intent. And as my mom told them that she decided to say no to this wealthy businessman who was good-looking, they were like, oh, I wish you went out with him and you married that guy in front of my dad. So I proceeded to tell them, well, here's how it works. If she chose that man over your grandpa, you wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be here. And, you know, I just left it at that and didn't go into further why that is the case. But it was in those choices that my mom made that changed the course of history and why I am here today preaching at the pulpit 1 Samuel 16. It's those unassuming choices, those small little decisions that we make that ultimately alter history or change it to the way that things are today, for better, for worse. Now here in chapter 16, we have that. It's this unassuming moment in the story of God's people that changes the entire story of Israel. It is this new chapter, this new epoch in the people, in the Israel story that forever changes God's people and ultimately brings Jesus to the forefront. The one that we have placed our faith in. The one where there is no other character in all of Scripture where the biography of one character fills the pages of Scripture like no other person. David is so influential in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in the letters that Paul writes. He is littered throughout Scripture because of his importance. But as we think about the importance of David, what we actually are going to see here is that this story is not about David. It's about God. It's about God's choice. God's decision to be able to Choose and anoint David as king. And the reason I say that is there's this word here that's said nine times throughout the story in Hebrew, and it's ra'ah. Now it's translated differently throughout this chapter that we just read, but literally it means to see, to look. It's this word that sometimes in this chapter is translated as to provide. Like if you look at the latter part of verse 1, God says to Samuel, for I have provided for myself. Well, if you translate it literally, it's for I have seen for myself a king among his sons. God is the one who chooses. God is the one who decides. God is the one who sees. And it's because of his choices, his actions, his purposes in life and in world history that we see where we are today because of his grace and his mercy. Well, because of God's choice, we're going to just learn three things about God this morning. Three things that I think are stark and helpful for us as we move this story along in 1 Samuel. And these three things that we learn about God's choice is this. God's sorrow, God's sight, and God's spirit. I rarely, you know, do the whole trans, or not, uh, you know, the S's, but somehow it worked out today. But we're going to look at God's God's sorrow, God's spirit. Uh, sight, and then lastly, God's spirit. 
Well, when you look at God's sorrow, the story opens up where it ended last week. We saw God grieving over Saul. And we saw Samuel grieving over Saul as well. In verse 11, but also here in verse 35 that we began the reading with. Now there's this word regret, and I know John talked about this last week, but this word that God regrets isn't like God saying, I wish I had changed my decision or choice. No, God's purposes have been fixed from the beginning of time for eternity. Even in Genesis, it was through the line of Judah that the king, God's Messiah, would come. And so it wasn't that God was regretting wanting to make a different decision or change his decision, but it was this regret meaning a sorrow, a grieving over the decisions that people make throughout history, that his creatures rebel, they sin, they make the wrong choices that is better for the flourishing of their life. And here we see God grieve over the choices that Saul has made. God is sorrowful, and we see this throughout history. In the scriptures, God is sorrowful. His spirit grieves when God's people rebel. God grieves over the wicked. He grieves over the wasted opportunities given to his people. He grieves when those that he raises fail him. He grieves when men and women who are made in the image of God rebel against him. God does not take delight in the death of the wicked and even here we see him grieve over Saul who chose to rebel against God and create his own empire over the kingdom of God. God grieves. God is a sorrowful God when he looks at the injustice of this world. His spirit grieves when he looks upon the wickedness and the decisions that we make. When things aren't the way it's supposed to be, He grieves and he is sorrowful. But guess who else grieves? Samuel grieves and laments the fate of Saul as well, right? And what you see here is when you get near the heart of God, you grieve like the way God grieves and is sorrowful over the brokenness of this world. And Samuel here grieves that grieves over this kingship that had such a hopeful promise. He grieves in Saul's rebellion and his rejection. And now without his leadership and a king, he grieves that God's people might actually self-destruct. But here's what's so fascinating about what God does. In Samuel's grief and in his sorrow, what does God call Samuel to? Look at verse 1. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Later on, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You see, the thing here isn't that we're not called to grieve and be sorrowful. There's so much to grieve. There's so much to be sorrowful about. The thing here isn't God is not rebuking Samuel for his grief. He's rebuking Samuel because he is almost crossing the line from grief to despair. In his long grieving and sorrow, he's forgetting God's purposes and promises for his people. 
All he can focus is on what is going on with Saul. And he forgets to look up to see in the midst of his grieving that he can actually have hope because God is still intent on fulfilling the purposes and promises that he has always begun with, right? He says, I have rejected Saul. I'm the one who rejected him. And I have also now provided for you. I have seen for myself a king who will be among these sons. And he's saying you need to not only grieve, but grieve with hope. There's nothing wrong with grieving. There's nothing wrong with sorrow. We live in a world that is broken. But do you grieve with hope and not despair? And I think that's the line, that fine line between what grieve, grieving and sorrow is to what despair looks like. Despair has no hope. Despair has no meaning and purpose in the midst of the loss. Right? What is grief? Grief is the hopeful promises that are slipped through our hands of what could be of the future. It's the momentary, beautiful moments that are in the present that are now past and gone. And while those things are true and we can grieve in sorrow, our faith calls us to grieve with hope, to know that in the midst of whatever is going on and with the loss of hope and future, whatever it might be, we know that eternity promises us that we can never be taken away the hope and beauty of what God promises when not only does he replenish, but he actually brings us something that is absolutely brand new. He's creating all things new again. And do we lose sight of God's purposes and promises for us? And here we see that in God's sorrow, as we draw near to him, do we remember his purposes? That he has chosen a king. That he is making all things new. He is redeeming and restoring. And though things aren't the way it's supposed to be, God's promises are sure and yes and an amen. So here Samuel hears God's word to say, how long are you going to grieve? You need to remember my promise. And what does he tell him? He says, I have chosen. I have seen for myself a king. Now go do it. And so he's promised to go to Bethlehem because in Bethlehem is this man named Jesse. And one of his sons is going to be king that I'm going to choose. And so what does Saul do? He, or Samuel do? He goes to Bethlehem. And there he meets Jesse and he tells Jesse to bring out all of his sons. And he does that. And as we see here, what we learn about God is God's sight. That's the second thing. Not just God's sorrow, but God's sight, meaning through God's eyes and through God's sight, we learn what wisdom actually looks like. And so Samuel lines up these men, right? These boys, really, who are Jesse's sons. And so starts from the oldest to the youngest. And the first is Eliab. And now he is tall. He's good looking. And when Samuel sees him, Samuel is reminded of who? Saul. Saul was tall. Saul was goodly. He was a head above the rest. And in that time and in that culture, why was that important? Kings went into battle with their soldiers, with their army. They needed to be strong. They needed to be tall. They needed to command presence. And so when Samuel looks at Eliab, he's like, this has got to be the guy. Surely he's the next king because he reminds him of Saul. This is what a king should look like. And what does God say? No way. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, God, this is God talking to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And one by one, Abinadab, no. Next is Shema, nope. The rest of the four sons are nameless, but none of them qualify as God's chosen king. Why? Because God does not look upon the outward appearance, but he looks upon the heart. Now, does that mean God only uses ugly people? (laughs) Short people? No. What this means is that God, the physical stature, physical outward appearances, does not matter. It doesn't qualify you. It doesn't disqualify you. It just does not matter because God looks upon the heart. And so when Samuel goes through all seven, he's like, dude, Jesse, like none of these are God's chosen for a king. Like, do you have another son? And what does Jesse say? He says, yeah, the youngest is out tending the sheep. Now the word youngest that we translate as, actually the Hebrew, the literal term is more like the runt. The runt of the family, the runt of the the litter, the, the eight sons is out in the field. He was not important. We don't know why he didn't bring him out. But what we know is he wasn't important enough to be consecrated and to come and attend this worship sacrifice. And so Jesse or Samuel says, bring him, bring him here. We will not sit down until he comes. So David comes and God tells Samuel he is the one. He's the one that we've been waiting for. The one who is a man after God's own heart. Now, how does the narrator, storyteller describe David? Verse 12, he's ruddy. He's good looking. Do you see that? It's not that Good-looking people can't be used by God. They can't. But where is your attention? Where is your focus? What are you working on? What are you cultivating in your life? Because in God's sight, in God's wisdom, is not about outward appearance. The only thing that matters is the heart. And here's what's so striking. Samuel is just like the culture around him. He is swimming in the waters of the ancient Near East. Because what do, what do kings look like? Kings need to be tall, handsome, rugged. What do we see when we talk about success? When we look at winning? When we look at influence? What is it? It's always the outward appearance. It's even in the church. What matters most of the time in our culture is what is on the outside. How you look. What kind of leadership you exhibit how strong you are, how vocal you are, the things you talk about. Everything needs to be pleasing to the eye, right? But here, the way of God is that it is very countercultural. You can be good-looking. You can be ruddy with, and handsome with beautiful eyes. But are you cultivating the heart? And Samuel is just as guilty as the rest of his culture in thinking what is or what makes a good king. And here, Samuel needs to learn to trust. Isn't that fascinating? Here he looks at Eliab and goes, well, he's the king, and God says no. But so many times we trust with our eyes and not by God's word. 
And one by one, with each of the seven sons, Samuel, though he's swimming in the same waters of the culture and believes the lies of the culture, now he has to believe with his eyes or with the word of God. And he trusts with faith in the word of God. This must be the guy, Samuel, no. This must be the guy, Samuel, no. And by faith, he trusts in God's word. He trusts in the Lord. To the point where finally with the eighth son, the runt, he sees him and God says, he is the man. He is the king. What do you look for? What guides your eyes? Is it everything that's flashy and beautiful? Or do you pay attention and cultivate your heart to be one who is filled with the fruit of the Spirit? Is it growing in you? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. Are these things marks of who you are? Or are you so consumed with your house, with your job, with money, with your looks, with the latest things going on in our culture that you could be hip? Or are we actually cultivating as much, if not more, the things that matter to God's eyes? This is the challenge that God gives to us as he did to Samuel. But the last thing we see here as we close that we learn about God's choice in David is God's spirit. God's spirit. After David is anointed as king, do you, did you read what it says in verse 13? And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. You immediately see the Spirit of God come upon David. Now the Spirit of God worked very differently from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the New Testament, when the Spirit of God comes, it regenerates us, right? It regenerates our hearts. It converts us to love God and the things of God and hate the things of this world and of sin. But in the Old Testament, just because the Spirit of God came upon somebody, it didn't necessarily mean that that person was regenerate in their hearts and now believed in God. The reason, one of the reasons the Spirit of God would come upon the people of God was that it would be to fulfill the purposes that God had for the people. So for example, there's a man named Bezalel in Exodus 31. When he was anointed and called to build the tabernacle he was an artist and what happens the spirit of god rushes upon bezalel why so that he could fulfill the purpose of god to build the tabernacle remember samson in judges the spirit of god rushes upon uh, samson why to defeat the philistines in their own house and even with Saul, do you remember when he was anointed as king, what happens to Saul when he's anointed? The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Why? To fulfill the purpose of king and to protect them and to defeat the Philistines. That was the purpose that God had for him. And so the, the Spirit of God rushes upon these people to fulfill the task that God has given them. How about David? What happens to David? The Spirit of God rushes on David and does he now become king? No. Not for another 10 years or so. David waits. And not does he just wait. He suffers. He suffers big time. 
Saul, the king who's going out on the, on the way towards the disaster, he wants to kill David, and David flees. He experiences so much hardship, so much suffering. And here is why I think that God's Spirit matters. What we learn is that the Spirit isn't just to call us to some task or purpose, but it is to equip and train us so that in the times of sorrow where we are tempted to despair, God's Spirit comes upon us to trust in Him. When we're tempted to be able to look upon the outward appearance, the Spirit of God rushes upon us that is within us to say God cares about the heart and not the outward appearance. Through suffering, through calamity, through hardship, through being attacked, it is the Spirit of God that keeps us, that protects us, that transforms us so that He can use us for whatever purposes that He has called you to in your workplace, as in your vocation, in your family, in your friendships, in school, in whatever training that you're going through. The Spirit of God dwells in us not only to just regenerate us and to convert us, but to make us people who will become more like Christ. And you see this even in his service to Saul. Does, does David rule and reign as king immediately when the Spirit of God comes upon him? No. As soon as the Spirit of God comes upon David, what happens to Saul? The Spirit of God leaves Saul. And a, a, a spirit of torment and harm actually comes upon Saul. Whereas he needs someone to be a balm for him. To re- give him relief. And who does that? Ironically, through God's providence, David is chosen. Because of his amazing ability to play the liar. He comes into the court of Saul. And serves the man that ultimately wants to destroy him and kill him. You see here what we see is that the Spirit is here for us to serve, to guide us, to equip us, to train us, and prepare us for the hardships that we will endure. Maybe 10 years like David. Maybe 20, 30 years. Whatever it might be, the Spirit of God that dwells in you for those who follow Christ, it is that relief, it is that balm, so that you might be able to experience the comfort and the peace that reigns because of the Spirit's work in your life. See, as we looked at these different things that we learn about God, God's sorrow, God's sight, God's Spirit, we can't get ahead of ourselves because we see here that God's purposes were being fulfilled. Right? God's choice for David had always been in place from the beginning of time. Through the line of Judah, through Jesse, and through David's line, Jesus would come. It would be another son in Bethlehem. Not David, but it would be Jesus who would actually fulfill the needs of God's people ultimately. You've heard over and over again, David fails. David, by the end of his life, when he dies... You actually feel horrible about the way he lived his life. But yet he was a man after God's own heart. He had humility. He came back to the Lord every single time and repented because the Spirit of God was upon him. But here in Jesus, the ultimate king, who not only reigns presently of David's throne, but for eternity, Jesus is the one who reigns. And when you look at his life, 
Jesus' life, he was anointed. As he's baptized, what happens? Does he experience just an amazing life? No, immediately he goes into the wilderness and he is attacked. He's tempted. But the Spirit of God that is upon him gives him the comfort and peace and protection and trains him and equips him for what is ahead that is even more difficult, which is to suffer and die for us out of his amazing love for you and for me. It is the Spirit of God that rushes on him to be able to say, not my will, but God, your will be done, though it might be so hard, though I will experience so much torture, so much harm, I'm willing to go to the cross, not only for my Father, but for you, my creation. And when you talk about sight, not looking at the outward appearance, Jesus was the runt. Isaiah 52, what does it describe of Jesus? His appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children's mankind. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. And you talk about sorrow. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Do you see that? This one who is so marred, whose sight was so, so ugly that no one wanted to see him. This one who's full of sorrow and grief is the king of kings. He is the one who comes and says, I love you. No matter what you go through in the brokenness of this world, in the grief that you experience, I am with you to comfort you by my spirit. Put your hope in him. Trust in him this day, this king of kings, whose David's throne reigns for eternity. God saw the true king. When he said to Samuel, Samuel, stop your weeping. I see the true king. It wasn't David. It's Jesus. Embrace him. Put your trust in him. And in your sorrows, in your struggles and failings to to look upon this world with our own eyes and what the culture says is important, May we look upon Christ and know there is a better way, a more beautiful way, and is the way of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for your Son, Jesus. Your Son who was so marred and so, so stricken violently that no one wanted to even lay his eyes on him the one who is filled with so much sorrow, Lord, comes to us and lifts, us our, lifts up our head to say, I love you. What a beautiful picture that is here at the table as we come to be reminded, Lord, that your grace is enough for us, that in our struggles and in our sorrow, when, Lord, things aren't going the way we want it to, Lord, we can trust in you, in your providence, in your sovereignty, in your purposes, So, Lord, I pray that you would be our grace, our strength this morning as we come to the table. Do that now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.